Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, welcome again. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me to John chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 22. As always, that text and passage is also printed for you in our order of worship this morning. Um, Just as a reminder to kind of set up what we're going to read, um, if you've been with us in John, you'll know this, but John tells the story or he narrates the story of Jesus, kind of marks time in that story um, according to the Jewish feasts. This morning, the feast that that, um, John points out to us that marks this passage is the Feast of Dedication, which is better known to us as Hanukkah. So a little background here that that may help you understand your Jewish neighbors, if you know a little about that feast. Hanukkah was a a relatively recent feast in Jesus' own day. Um, The events it commemorated happened after the close of the Old Testament, and so there's nothing in the Old Testament about it. The story of Hanukkah goes like this. In 167 BC, the Syrians invaded Jerusalem. And they kept Jerusalem, they, they took Jerusalem for about a three-year period. When they did that, they desecrated the temple there by setting up an altar to their version of Zeus. Um, the, the Israelites called that an abomination, and that abomination came to an end when a man named Judas Maccabeus and his army drove out the Syrians and purify the temple on the 25th of the Jewish month of Kislev, which corresponds in our calendar to December. So there you have it. That's the, sort of the background. Now that becomes important for two reasons in our passage. Number one, you need to know this. Hanukkah was a pol- marked a political victory. Um, it, was, uh, it was commemorating a national deliverance, a political victory. And number two, the other big thing you need to know is that symbolize the consecration or the celebration of Israel's temple. It commemorated when Israel's temple was repurified and reset apart and consecrated once again. So a political victory and the consecration of Israel's temple. It's really important background for what we're going to read about this morning. For our young disciples, our young Christians, here's something for you to think about. If you were to hold something in your hand, if you were to hold something tightly in your hand, if you were to grip it tightly, what would that say about your relationship to that thing? If you're holding something tightly, what does that say about your relationship to the thing that you're holding? With that in mind, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. John writes, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? 
The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand your word um, in this dialogue with the Jewish leaders and Jesus, Lord, that you would point out what you would want us to hear, what you would have for us as your people, or that we might be the sheep of your pasture, and that we might know, as Jesus says here, that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Or would you stir faith in us this morning through your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at our passage this morning, just for you to sort of notice that um, the Jewish leaders here, and by the way, this is the last time that Jesus has a major dialogue in John's gospel with the Jewish leaders before he goes back to Jerusalem for his passion, his death and resurrection. So here in this final dialogue, the Jewish leaders continue to press Jesus about who he is. And I would just remind you that that really is the central question of the gospel. The way it's framed in the synoptic gospels or in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is this, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? That's the question. And as they continue to press him on that question, the Jewish leaders here, Jesus in this passage points them to his works. So he says, look, if you want to know who I am, verse 25, the works that I do in my father's name, they're the things that bear witness about me. In verse 37, he says, if I am not doing the works in my father, then do not believe in me. In that same verse, Jesus says, believe my works. So that's what we want to look at this morning. What do the works of Jesus tell us about who he is? And I want to give you this morning two words that help us categorize those works in the following paragraphs. The two words are not explicitly in this passage, but they are the two words that John gives us in the beginning of his gospel, in his prologue, in order to help us understand the glory of Jesus that he has already witnessed in those works. And those two words are grace and truth. That Jesus has come to us and he is one who is filled, that is his works are characterized by grace and truth. So we're going to look this morning first at the works of Jesus that communicate his grace to us in verses 22 through 30. And then second, verses 31 through 39, the works of truth that he specifies that go unto the fulfillment of God's word, the works of grace and the works of truth in those uh, paragraphs um, in turn. Look at me beginning in verse 24. Let's just outline the dialogue together for a moment. So the Jews gather around Jesus and say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, that word for Christ, remembers the word Messiah. If you are the Messiah, then tell us plainly. And just to be clear, those leaders are not looking for good reasons to believe in Jesus. 
They are instead looking for a plain statement of self-incrimination in order to bring Jesus to trial and to kill him. And so how does Jesus respond here? Does he give them the answer that they're looking for? Well, there's a yes and a no. Verse 25, he says pretty plainly, yes, I've told you what you want to hear. I've already told you those things, and yet it's your unbelief, not the clarity of my language, but your unbelief that has kept you from really hearing me. But apart from what he said to the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4, remember that was a private conversation that only the disciples would learn about later? Apart from that conversation, Jesus has never plainly said that he is the Messiah. And here's why. Do you remember back in John chapter 6? Just nod, just pretend like you remember. Okay, it helps me. John chapter 6, when Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000, it's actually about 20,000, counting all the men and women and children who were there. What did the people who were so happy with Jesus want to do next? John tells us that they wanted to take him by force, which is kind of laughable, and they wanted to make him their king because that's what the Messiah was to them. He was a political vindicator. He was a political savior. And now here we are, get it, at the festival of Israel's national deliverance. It was an overtly political celebration. And their idea of a Messiah is so far off from Jesus' true mission that even if he said to them and confirmed plainly that I am the Christ, they couldn't hear what that meant. So verse 26 said, they are deaf to the voice of the shepherd. My own hear me, but you do not. And by the way, the whole shepherd imagery that we came across last week, that was probably the most vivid way, vivid image in the Old Testament to talk about the anticipation or the expectations for the Davidic Messiah. So here we have both a yes and a no. Yes, Jesus gives them enough. No, he does not give them what they want, which is a pattern in the life of Jesus throughout the gospel. He has these conversations with people, and if you're reading the gospel sometime, you're going to notice, why won't you just say things clearly? Because here's what's going on. Jesus is always giving people enough of himself to make faith possible, but he is also concealing enough of himself to make faith necessary. And here we have it all over again. And so instead of a plain statement, Jesus points to them to, in verse 25 to the works that he does in the Father's name. In other words, he says, I want you to look at what I've done, and I want you to test that. And I want you to see if in those works you have seen the works of Yahweh, the works of your God. What are some of the works that Jesus has done in John's gospel that John has recorded for us? Think about it. A few chapters back, Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid, couldn't walk for 38 years. Jesus fed a big group of people, five to 20,000, whatever that is, in the wilderness who were hungry. That sound familiar? Chapter back, Jesus healed a man who was born blind from birth. So to these Jewish leaders, Jesus says this, does the God that you know, does the God that you meet in the Old Testament, does Yahweh, does he make the lame to walk? Does he make the blind to see? Does he feed the hungry? And of course, the answer to all those questions is absolutely. And Jesus is saying that you, you see my grace, you see my mercy, and what you're seeing in that is the grace and presence of Yahweh in my own works. 
But I want you to look at what Jesus primarily points to in verses 27 through 29. Look there with me. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We saw that last week. I gave them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, this is how the next line probably should be translated. According to most commentators. I don't have time to get into grammar, but this is how it should probably be translated. What my father has given to me, that is the flock or the church. Those whom my father has given to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what I want you to see there is that the work that Jesus most commends to them here that confirms his identity is what? It is the work of God's security. It is the work of God's safeguarding. It is the work of God holding his people in the grip of his hand, as he says, as the sheep of his pasture. And these leaders would have known that work as the promise of covenant security. It is the work of a secure, stable, reliable, eternal relationship with God based on his grace. Young disciples, I asked you a question this morning at the beginning. If you are holding on to something tightly, and I try to think of things that might be for you. I can tell you what it might be in my house. It might be a piece of candy that's, that you don't want your siblings to get. If you're a teenager or even an adult, it could be a cell phone. If it, um, you know, if it's, uh, uh, well, when they were young, it was a blankie. Okay, so you get it. If you're holding on to something tightly, what does that say about your relationship to that thing? What it says is that you do not want to lose it. That you treasure it. That it has incredible value to you. And what Jesus is saying here is this, you can know me, you can know me by this. You can know that I am the Messiah by the way that I treasure and hold on to my people. And I will keep them so safe, I will value them so intensely and greatly that they will never be separated from me, no matter what. And this was Israel's story. Listen to Israel's constituting charge or reminder from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. This is what God told Israel. For you are a people that is holy, that is set apart or given to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, for his holding out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Then he says this, that's not because you are greater in number. Later he says it's not because of your righteousness. And it's as if in Deuteronomy he goes through all the things that they think might constitute the rationale for why God has chosen them. And he says, none of, it's, none of it's the case. It's because the Lord loves you. And he is keeping the covenant that he has sworn. And what that means, friends, is if you peel back all the layers of rationale for why God claims his people, what you get at the bottom is this. Because he loves you. Just because he loves you. And Jesus says, follow these same breadcrumbs back to me to know who I am. As the Father loves and he holds and he treasures, so do I love and I hold and I treasure as well. They can't see it now, but this is a preview of what will happen just a few chapters later on the cross. And that will be the work that defines the work in Jesus' life. Because that is, the, that is the work when the grip of Jesus on his sheep will be tested most. 
And that is the work on that same cross when his grip around his sheep will close forever. Because as he says there, that will be the covenant or the holding that is made in his blood. In Matthew's gospel, you may remember this. Jesus issues this invitation, not unlike what we have here. He says, come to me all who are weary and do what? Rest. Come to me all who are weary and who are heavy laden, who are heavy burdened and rest. And we might use some of the terminology here and say this, come to me all you whose grip is weak. Come to me all you who carry heavy loads. Come to me and rest in my hands. Because here's what you're going to find. The load of your sin is going to be too heavy to carry. The load of your insecurity, too heavy to carry. The load of your regret. And if you're old enough, you know what that feels like. The load of your shame. The load of your own efforts to safeguard yourself. How about this one? The load of your own efforts to safeguard your kids. You cannot bear the weight of those loads. So Jesus says, if you know that, if you know loads that are too heavy, then come to me and I will carry you. And the promise is there, no one will snatch you away. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because you're a good-looking, well-built, and fun to be with, or whatever else you fashion yourself to be. It is because of the grace and mercy of Jesus who loves you and is keeping the covenant he has sworn, the covenant that he has ratified in his blood. And you will know him by that work. You will know him by works of grace. Second, you'll also know him by his works of truth. Look at me at verses 31 through 33. The Jewish leaders respond. They get it, right? They get it. They respond by preparing to stone Jesus. And verse 33 is very clear on why that is. They say, look, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. In other words, we can't identify any reason from your works to stone you. But for blasphemy. What is blasphemy? The next line. Because you being a man, make yourself God. And friends, all four of the gospel writers agree that, that blasphemy really does become the basis of the Jewish charge against Jesus. It is the hammer legally that drives in the nails of the crucifixion. And blasphemy here is put so plainly. You being a man, make yourself God. Now I'm going to assume this morning that that you've been with me in John's gospel, we've been reading together, and if so, then what is the irony in that charge? The irony is it's exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. Jesus as a man does not make himself God. What, what, is, it, what is it instead? Jesus as a God, as, as God, was made man. As John has told us, it, the, the direction's the other way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I just want to point out here what we see so often in John's gospel, that unbelief doesn't just blind the leaders to the truth, that unbelief results in getting the truth completely backwards and upside down. And only faith can see what seems so upside down to everyone else. How does Jesus respond here? He points out that their hypocrisy in two ways. Remember, their hypocrisy is misalignment with the truth. He points out that uh, misalignment in two ways. The first here is obvious. The second is a little more subtle. So first, the obvious thing. Look there with me at verse 34. Jesus points them to the Old Testament in verse 34. 
And in this case, he quotes Psalm 82, where God himself says this. He says, I said, you are God's. And if we were to keep reading in Psalm 82, the rest of the line goes like this. I said, you are God's, sons of the Most High, all of you. The context of Psalm 82 is the giving of the law to Israel at Mount Sinai. So in Psalm 82, God is speaking to Israel, as Jesus says, to those to whom the word of God came. And here's his point. This is Jesus arguing on their turf as a rabbi. This is how the argument goes. If God himself called those to whom his word came, if he called them gods, and if in doing so, God himself did not feel diminished or dishonored in any way, then how much more permissible is it to use God's or the Son of God with me, whose works of truth are in complete agreement with God's law? See what he's doing here? He's telling them this, look, if, if you charge me with blasphemy, then you have to charge God with blasphemy, and that would be what? That would be blasphemy. He's got them tangled around the axle here. The point being here, you see this over and over in John's gospel, Jesus is saying this, the truth of the Bible cannot be known apart from me. The truth of Scripture is on my side, not yours. And that is the first obvious way he points out their misalignment with the truth or their hypocrisy. Now here's the more subtle one. Look at the word that Jesus uses to describe his mission in verse 36. It's an important word, it's the word consecrated. He writes, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's naming himself as the consecrated one. What is the background again? The background is the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. And remember in that story, the heroes of Hanukkah were the ones who consecrated, who purified the temple after the Syrians had desecrated it. And what I didn't mention before is that when that happened, when the desecration occurred, the leader of the Syrian movement set up a rival altar in the sanctuary, and he proclaimed himself to be God in the flesh. And when that happened, a group of apostate Jews started following him. They became blasphemers who left the faith. So now here we are. We are here at the Feast of Dedication, and who is who in this story? If Jesus is the consecrated one, then he really is the fulfillment of the hero of Hanukkah. He is Hanukkah himself. He is the truth of the feast. And we've seen him proclaim that throughout John's gospel, haven't we? In chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. They get mad about that. But he says, no, 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 no. I am the truth of the Sabbath. I am the truth to which the Sabbath points. I am healing. I am rest. In John 6, Jesus gave the bread at Passover. Why? because he is the true manna who came down from heaven. In chapter seven and eight, the water and the light ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles are replaced by Jesus, who calls himself the true source of living water and the true light of the world. You get this, right? If Jesus is the true consecrated temple, if he is the true place where God has come to meet with us in a reconciled way, then to reject Jesus, to stone him in this case, that is to desecrate the temple. That is to reject and to blaspheme and to serve a rival God. 
And here's the point that Jesus is making over and over again in that second paragraph. The fullness of who God is and all of his truth. The fullness of how God has made himself known as revealed in his word is fulfilled and on perfect display in the person and works of Jesus. What you have, friends, in Jesus is you have truth in the flesh. And so you cannot understand God. You cannot really understand his ways. You can't understand his law or his character or his standards, his revealed will, certainly. You can't understand the Bible without Jesus at the very center of it. And here's what I'd leave you with this morning and remind you of. I think we all know this first thing. Truth is not something we find inside of ourselves. It's not a project of self-discovery. Truth is not self-expression. Truth is not self-actualization. Truth is not our own will, our own feelings, or our own judgments at the center. We get that? It's not our head. But neither is truth this. Truth is also not just a matter of information. Truth is not just an impersonal standard that is about doing the right things or making a stand for the right things that other people ought to do. In the gospel, truth is a person. And truth comes to us incarnate, clothed in the flesh. Truth has a heart that beats. Truth truth takes steps that we are to follow in. And ultimately, as John describes it, truth is believing in the one whom God has sent and becoming like that one more and more in our own character. That is in how we live and in how we love and in how we serve others according to how Jesus has loved us and lived for us and served us. Look at the end of our passage this morning. We'll close here. End of our passage, John the Baptist, who's, by, by the way, been dead for a while now, he receives a commendation or an epitaph that all of us should long to be said about us. So at this point in the story, Jesus has left Judea, and he is returning to John 1, to the place where his public ministry began. He's a few years removed from that now. It is the place that John the evangelist tells us is where John the Baptist has been baptizing. It's the place where Jesus was first proclaimed to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, just of note, Jesus has not been in this place in John's narrative in a few years. And yet what happens? Through John's ministry, through John living in and living out the truth of Jesus, what we read here is that many in that place came to Jesus and believed in him when he arrived on the scene. And what reason does the gospel give for that? Look at verse 41. Not because John did signs. Not because John did a lot of miraculous things. Not because John had fireworks around his ministry. But because everything that John said about this man was true. That is to say, in John the Baptist's life, with his words and his ways, he had borne witness to Jesus in such an authentic and true way that when Jesus came back into town, the hearts of the people there were already ready to recognize him. He was familiar to them. And because of John's witness, because of his life, because of his words, because of his care, 
they were ready to receive and trust the one who was full of grace and truth. May that be true of us. That people recognize Jesus because, as John did, we have lived among them. We have lived among them. And our witness was true to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the word made flesh. Thank you for calling us to yourself, for giving us the life of Jesus. We do, oh oh God, pray that we would be, that you would grow us up into the character of the one who is full of grace and truth. Would you make us a people so formed by those words? Lord, would you make our works to mirror the life of Jesus in that way? We thank you, Father, that his life was laid down for us, and in a, a unique way, as the fullness of grace and truth, that he took our sin to bear, that in his hand and your hand, the double grip of the Father and the Son, we can rest this morning. Would you return rest to us through faith? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.